The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation, and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So, Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about women in the workplace. And, you know, there is so much inner conflict for women when they're having young families, they want to work, they want to use their their skills and their talents and their career, and yet they also want to have time with their children and they want they may often feel guilty about that. I know I went through that. But there's also other kinds of conflict in the workplace with women. There's there's bias against women in the workplace. There's disparity of, of income between men and women. And there's also disparity of, of women of color. And I found this wonderful book called what Works for Women at Work, and it's written by Joan Williams and her daughter, Rachel Dempsey, which I think is really fun. And it's about four patterns that working women need to go need to know. So let me tell you first about our wonderful guest who's coming to us from Northern California. She is an attorney and a professor up at Hastings Law School. But let me tell you, she has played a central role in reshaping the debates over women's advancement for the past quarter century. She's described as something approaching a rock star status by the New York Times, and her awards include the Families and Work Institute Work Life Legacy Award, which she got this year in 2014, the Hastings Visionary Award, which she got last year, the American Bar Foundation's Outstanding Scholar Award, which she got in 2012, the Elizabeth Herlock Beckman Award, which she also got in 2012. She has so many awards, and she's also written 99 academic articles and book chapters, and she has written or co-written eight books. Most recently, the one that, that I just got and I've been reading called What Works for Women at Work, Four Patterns Working Women Need to Know, and this, as I said, it was co-written with her daughter. As a founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law, she has played, played a central role in fighting workplace discrimination against mothers. And she has appeared on uh, in such outlets as diverse as the Harvard Business Review, O Magazine, Human Resource Executive, Jezebel, and the Yale Law Review. And you can follow her on Twitter at Joan C. Williams. And she also has a Huffington Post blog, which you can follow her. So we're just thrilled that you joined us today, Joan, all the way from Northern California. I'm delighted to be here, Mari. 
So tell me first, why did you and your daughter write this book? Well, I decided to write this book because I've worked on organizational change um, for over 20 years. And women uh, have kind of stalled out at the top of virtually every industry. Um, there hasn't been a lot of improvement since the mid-1990s. And I um, just about three, four years ago, I got disheartened. And I said, you know what? The organizations aren't changing. So I'm going to tell women how to navigate the organizations as they find them. And so that's why I decided to write this book. Um, and then I looked around. I had sort of decided that although I write well for a professor, I um, don't write, I can't write in a, um, in, in a way to really get a broad audience. So I wanted to team up with a journalist. And um, I hired the best one I found. Just She just happened to be my daughter. Oh, that's so fun. I got such a kick out of that when I read the article. Uh, I read an article in the Daily Journal about you and your daughter writing that. And I I got a, a, such a kick out of that because my daughter worked for me as a law clerk, and we wrote several articles together, and a couple of them have been in the Daily Journal. So I said, it's oh, fun. yeah, it is fun. It's fun. And it's, it's, um, it's, an, it's an interesting way for a mother-daughter to, to work together, I think. So mm -hmm. I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm enjoying your book as well. So you talk about four patterns of gender bias in the workplace. Could you, could you describe those for my audience? Yes. Um, the first one we call prove it again, and that stems from the fact that if you think about the brilliant neuroscientist or lawyer or doctor, you name it, um, CEO, most people um, will think of a man. That's the image that springs to their mind. Right. And so women have to provide a little bit more evidence of competence than men in order to be seen as equally competent. The, the second pattern we call the tightrope, and that stems from the fact that um, traditionally male jobs are not only seen as being um, held by men, they're also seen as requiring masculine quali qualities, so being direct, assertive, um, those kinds of things. but And so women have to behave in those ways in order to be seen as competent. But women are expected to be feminine, so they find themselves walking a tightrope between being liked but not respected or respected but not liked. So that's the second pattern. The third pattern is the maternal wall, and that's gender bias triggered by motherhood, which is actually... Um, and much stronger than the two glass ceiling patterns that I described before it. Um, if you give people identical resumes, one but not the other a mother, the mother is 79% less likely to be hired and only half as likely to be promoted. And keep in mind, these are identical resumes other than the fact that one is a mother and one isn't. Mm. Um, the, the final pattern we call tug of war, and that's when... Um, gender bias against women fuels conflicts among women. Sometimes it's that women's coping strategies um, end up pitting them against each other, um, and then there are a variety of other ways in which women end up um, um, sort of pitted against each other sometimes in the workplace. Which one um, do women most resonate with? Well, um, I uh, most um, first of all, 
Uh, when I interviewed 127 women, um, 96% recognized one or more of these patterns. So they're very, very widespread. Um, the most commonly reported pattern was the tightrope, that trying to navigate between being liked but not respected and, or respected but not liked. Right, right. That was three-quarters, almost three-quarters of women reported that. And, you know, there's a whole different way. You know, I've done some um, gender negotiation train that I train people in gender negotiation. And, um, you know, I think one of the things is is that when women try and negotiate like a man negotiates, she actually is perceived as a witch, right? And, yeah. And, and so there are, that's one of the things that, that I kind of was thinking about when you were talking about this is that, we as women have to negotiate in the way that gives us power. That we don't have to negotiate like a man negotiates to actually have the power and not be perceived as, um, you know, in a, in a way as being a, a witch or as being softy. We can just be assertive without being considered aggressive. So, so that's kind of an interesting tightrope to learn that's the tightrope. Yeah. Yeah, uh, how a, to learn how to do that in a way that is totally feminine yet total, totally empowered, right? Well, and some people really object to the pressure on them to be feminine. Um and um some people feel that's their authentic self. Um and for those women, they are are, are going to be liked, but they have to work hard to be respected. For women who um, just naturally feel more comfortable with a sort of direct, assertive, masculine style, they have to work harder to be liked. Um, but men can use a much wider variety of styles and um, not face that trade-off between likability and competence. So yeah. that's the tightrope. Yeah, yeah. How about gender bias with regard to women of color compared with white women? What did you find? Well, I heavily oversampled women of color because I'm very interested in how the experience of gender bias um, varies for, di for, for, for women of different groups. Um, women of color reported more of every single type of gender bias. Um, they also experience these biases in somewhat different ways, um, both from each other and from white women. Um, for example, one study um, found, uh, one experimental study found in my interviews confirmed this, that um, African-American women um, often are allowed to behave in more dominant ways than the other three groups of women are, than um, Latinas, Asian-Americans, and white women. Um, so African-American women um, sometimes find that dominant and assertive behavior is more readily accepted in them although they also feel that um, they have even steeper prove-it-again problems than the other three groups of women. They often feel, even if they're very senior and accomplished women, like they can't afford to make a single mistake. Mm. So I think that, um, that feminists really need to focus an, uh, a lot more um, on how these experiences, although they're, they're, they are widely shared among women, um, the tenor of them does differ. It's inflected by race and ethnicity. Mm, interesting. So what what is um, office house? Well, you talk about office housework. Uh, what is that? The office housework um, 
is, um, again, a problem on the tightrope. Um, women have problems if they're seen as too feminine. They also have problems if they're seen as too masculine. Um, the office housework is one of the problems that women um, face if they um, feel under pressure to, um, to do what we call the office housework. And um, then that's where they often end up liked but not respected. It's really two quite different kinds of office housework. One is literally housework. It's um, cleaning up the conference room, taking the notes, bringing in cupcakes. Um, they, the second kind of office housework is actually important work. It's just undervalued work. And so, for example, in tech, being a project manager is often, um, uh, often office housework. It's important work, but it's not the work that really is valued in that environment. Mm. For women lawyers in law firms, um, often being a service partner is office housework because the men want to be rainmakers because that's what the compensation system rewards. Um, and men often place their women partners under pressure to, um, to serve the clients while the men go out and get new clients, which means the men make a whole heck of a lot more money than the, the, the women do. So we talk about there, you really need two quite different strategies for these two different kinds of office housework. For the office housework that's, um, that is literally housework, whether it's baking cupcakes or taking the notes or um, organizing the meeting. Um, the, the strategy we find, found women use, using successfully is to do that um, once very, um, very cheerfully and then behind the scenes set up a rotation so that the most junior people um, take the notes and they pass that responsibility around. Or the supervisor's administrative assistant is the one who organizes the birthday parties. Um, some women love, you know, love to bake, and they love to organize the birthday parties, and more power to them. But if you're always playing that role in, in, in a professional context, it's not generally a role that's going to enhance your authority. So you should make sure that's passed around. For the other kind of office housework, where if you're getting stuck with, you know, the 15th um, paperclips committee um, or the 15th important committee, um, whether it be a diversity committee or a women's initiative, important work, but again, typically not valued. Um, it's important to go out to do a couple of those things that you think are important, but then to go out and get high-value work, and then the next time somebody comes um, to you with an opportunity for yet another bit of office housework, you say, you know, I would love to help you there, but I'm actually really helping Jim with this strategic initiative, but I know who would be perfect for you. It is Rick down the hall. <laughs> Great. That's Great. what I call gender judo. <laughs> You're basically taking the feminine stereotype um, a good woman is selfless and always helpful, yeah. but you're making that feminine stereotype work for you. You're really flipping around the momentum of that stereotype that typically holds you back to propel you forward because um, you're, you know, you're being so helpful to, uh, to Jim and Rick and all the rest of them, but meanwhile, you got the good work. Yeah. 
So, so you're saying that these kinds of activities, if you continue to participate in them without kind of <clears throat> helping gentlemen to be involved in it as well, is that it's, go- it's going to hold you back in terms of your salary, in terms of, of promotions? What are you talking about holding back? Well, I mean, in a, in, for example, for lawyers, for law firm partners, um, law firm compensation systems very heavily weight people who bring in clients. Right. So right. If, you're, if you're doing the work, um, the legal work, uh, and not bringing in clients, in many law firms, not all, but in many, you're going to be really disadvantaged in terms of the amount of money that you make. And you have to decide whether that's important to you. But if it is, this is a way to um, this is a way to free up your time, so you can do the value the the kind of work that's actually highly valued in your context. So we talked a little bit about law firms, but are there differences in the ways in which gender gender bias really plays out in in all the professions like science, finance, law, academia? Yeah, in fact, now I'm I'm seeking to launch industry-based studies. Yeah, um, yeah. Specifically, I'm, I'm looking for funding for a study um, in finance and a study of women of color in the law. Um, this uh, this first study was um, was a study generally of women um, in women professionals um, in law, business, and science. So. Um, and I did find um, that it's it was it's a little it's not clean methodologically because the the women of color um, whom I interviewed most of them were women in STEM science technology engineering and math through a National Science Foundation grant so it's a little unclear um, why uh, whether the differences I found were because they were in science or because they were women of color I suspect it was both. But certainly, um, you had a, a very different, um, um, very different emotional tone. For example, again, going back to uh, to African American women, the um, African American professionals I talked to, many of them reported a, 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 a being really profoundly disrespected in ways that I had never heard among um, the other groups. Well, certainly, white women or Asian American women. Hmm. For um, Asian American scientists, um, one woman actually thought um, said, "I just make sure I'm seen as an Asian rather than a woman." Yeah, <laughs> uh, she wanted to be that high technical competence stereotype of an Asian right. rather than the low technical competence stereotype of a of a woman. I think it would be really interesting to speak with people in uh, the, the IT profession. I have a good friend who's a CISO with a major major big company that you would know, and she's been with other big companies, and um, there aren't that many women CISOs out there. Yeah, yeah. And, no, uh, I, yeah, and she's... I'm very she, interested in women in tech. Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of challenges that tech has in retaining and advancing women. Yeah, she's in D.C., and um, but we can talk later if you want to talk to her, because she's such a kick. And she she is wonderful. I mean, I, I love her, and she she's able to maintain herself in that kind of environment. And of course, I know the legal environment as well. Mm-hmm. And and my friends, so that's that's changing. I mean, remember when I was in law school, 
um, there weren't as many women in law schools. Now I think it's 51% are women in law school. I don't know if it's like that up, up where you are at Hastings. but um, um, it's, It actually it peaked, and now it's gone down a little bit, but it's still close to 50%. Right, right. So let's, for, for the women here, we're sitting on the campus of the University of California in Irvine. So let's talk about, for the women who are listening here especially, some of the key strategies for women to combat these four different types of uh, patterns of gender bias. Can you kind of walk us through? Okay. Well, the first, the first pattern, um, as I mentioned, is prove it again, where women have to provide more evidence of competence than men in order right. to be seen as equally competent. Um, and one of the patterns that contributes to that is that women's mistakes tend to be noticed more and remembered longer, and their successes are often attributed to luck rather than skill. Mm. And so if you think about it, if women um, are going to be, if you're, someone's going to remember your mistakes and forget your successes, you have to help their memory. So it's important um, to keep careful real-time records of all objective metrics that you have met and to trot them out um, in um, every appropriate context. The, the second major strategy is a strategy that helps both with prove-it-again problems and with tightrope problems. This strategy we call the posse. And the posse is where um, you ha- have a, form a group um, of people at about your level, a little bit above maybe, and um, celebrate each other's successes. So that's a, another example of gender judo because um, you are a, a good team player, um, a selfless woman celebrating somebody's successes. It's best, actually, if the posse include men as well as women. That puts you in the position of celebrating the successes of a man. What's more appropriately feminine than that? On the other hand, he is um, keeping your accomplishments before everybody's eyes, which is extremely important because you have to prove yourself more than, um, than men do. So it reminds are- me, yeah, I was going to say when you're talking about the posse or that kind of group, <clears throat> one of the things that um, I've been involved with, which has been really helpful, is to be in a mastermind group with men and women. You know, they aren't large groups, but they're a group that, that does that kind of thing. They help each other to grow. They they are um, very positive about giving accolades to each other. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you can run something by them and say, you know, what do you think I should do with this situation? Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. men and women in the mastermind group to help each other grow. So that's what it reminds you of when you're talking about the posse or the group. Yes, so. it is. That's a, that's a good example of a posse. Um, we've talked about the strategies for um, some of the tightrope strategies if people don't seem to take you quite seriously. Um, those are those concern office housework. Um, but what if you're on the other side of the tightrope and people definitely respect you, but they definitely do not like you? This is the what a witch problem. Right, um, right. The, um, the, the what a witch, the answer to um, the what a witch problem, if you want if you're interested in a change, is the gender judo. Um, you do something masculine, but in a very feminine way. So, for example, if you're, um, if you're negotiating, um, rather than um, being that hard-driving negotiator the way a man is free to be, if that's his druthers, 
um, you um, say that you're negotiating that I need a higher salary, for example, because it's important for my team, or I need this higher salary because I've met these objective metrics, but, you know, let's talk about how this might um, fall on Peter and how we can sign the control uh, control his his any feelings he might have around this. So you're you're oh such a dutiful woman doing the emotion work and uh, attending to other people's comfort levels. Um, you know some people um, their default mode is masculine and they hear this kind of advice and they just go you know like I would rather die. And my feeling is you know if you don't feel comfortable with it it's not going to work for you. Um, but if you are having a lot of what a witch problems, uh, I think that you should consider the, some of these gender judo um, uh, maneuvers and figure out what are the parts of traditional femininity that you feel comfortable with. Um, presumably, deference isn't one of them, but right, um, right, being right. tuned to other people's comfort levels is, um, is rarely a bad thing. So that's the, the tightrope. Maternal wall... Um, there are really two basic strategies. One is you overcome assumptions that since you're a mother, you're no longer competent committed. So you overcome those assumptions with information. So when you return from maternity leave, ask for a meeting, say, I'm delighted to be back. Here are my short-term goals. Here are my goals for the next five years. Let's talk about how we can make sure I'm ready to achieve them. Um, if your spouse is willing to follow you, say so. If you're the primary earner, say so. Um, if you are willing to travel, say so. Because if you don't, people will make the opposite assumption. And then there's a lot of um, prescriptive bias against mothers, the sense that um, um, one woman actually is quoted, this is an Asian-American lawyer, and one of her partners said, I don't know how you can leave the kids. I could never, my wife could never do that, leave her kids alone like that. <laughs> right. Try to, um, try to make actually, you feel guilty, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the message is you're a bad mother. Right, um, right. And so you just smile sweetly and use what we call the Tolstoy was wrong um, strategy, which is to say, you know, I'm sure that's right for her, but happy families aren't all alike, and this is what's right for my family. Um, the, the tug of war strategies are, are, are tough, and they depend on there's different types of tug of war dynamics that I can talk about if that's, that's a good sure. next step. Sure. Yeah. Um, sometimes, first of all, it should be said sometimes women get along great. Um, on the other hand, um, they're often in tradition, in highly, um, in heavily male environments, women often do not support each other. Sometimes it's because um, of tokenism. They, uh, they get the message that there's really, really room for only one woman at the table. So then, of course, women are going to compete with each other to be that one woman. That doesn't mean that they're um, a witch with a personality problem or a queen bee. That means there's gender bias um, in the environment. Right. Um, another prove-it-again problem is when um, uh, excuse me, another tug-of-war problem is when prove-it-again bias um, pits women against each other. For example, there was a study of legal secretaries that found that not one preferred to work with a woman lawyer, although it's important to say that 50% didn't give a hoot whether they worked with male or female lawyers. Um, but one woman said, you know, that women lawyers feel like they're under such performance pressure, and they feel like they can't make a mistake, and they take that out on you. 
So in other words, the prove-it-again pressure that the women professionals feel turns into conflicts with their admins. Um, Another um, professional admin conflict, which we hear very pervasively, is that women often feel, and this is often professors, but it's in a variety of, large variety of fields, um, feel that um, admins very happily do certain kinds of work for men, but they resist doing the same kind of work for women. Um, again, that's going to lead to conflicts among women, and that's just, again, a pass-through of gender bias in the environment. Well, this is it's so fascinating to hear about this. I think in, in my career I've seen so many changes, really for the better, you know, as opposed in the beginning, I think, when I started out my career, that I think that there was a lot more gender bias. So I see that it is improving, but I do see that there is a, a great room for improvement. We are just about out of time, but um, I just would like you to just tell us maybe in, in a little bit about, well, let me see, I don't think we have time for that, but I'd love to, well, people are going to have to read your book. Why don't we just give your book and your website again, because it is just about time to go, okay? Okay. Um, the book is What Works for Women at Work, Four Patterns Working Women Need to Know, and the accompanying website is called The New Girls Network. Perfect. Thank you so much, Joan, for all the, you know, you've done such a great job here, and uh, I'll finish reading the book, and I really recommend it. It's a a wonderful book, and it's a great way for us to learn some new strategies. So thank you again. We'll have you back again. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Thanks. It's about trust expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.